0: Need to get some holiday shopping done and want to give something entertaining and educational? Art Curious Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History has you covered. Art Curious the Book is an ideal holiday present for the art newbie and art lover alike, as well as the perfect paperback for anyone who loves a good and weird story, like whether a British painter was one of the most notorious serial killers in history. How two women in the late 19th and early 20th centuries may have beaten Vasily Kandinsky to the punch when it comes to being deemed the world's first totally abstract artists. And whether Renaissance artists really stole corpses to inspire their masterworks. Get Art Curious now, wherever you buy your books, audiobooks, and ebooks. Find out all the details at our website, artcuriousbook.com. The Art Curious podcast is primarily sponsored by Anchor Light. For more information, please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. I often like to reminisce about my first-ever experience with a true blockbuster art exhibition because it really stuck with me. It's the one I mentioned at the beginning of my episode on the death of Vincent van Gogh, which you, Art Curious's audience, recently voted as your favorite episode of this show. This exhibition was all about Van Gogh, but especially focused in on his portraits, and it was my first blockbuster show, and so I did all of the things that you have to do when facing such a huge proposition. I waited in a long winding line to walk through the museum door, stood in unbearably crowded galleries, craned my neck to get a good view of the colorful canvases before me, and so forth. But all of this, to me, was worth it. I got to see so many incredible works of art in one place and could experience them personally. There's nothing like the opportunity to connect or commune with a work of art in person. I loved it. But it wasn't my favorite experience with a blockbuster exhibition. My actual favorite blockbuster show was held at that same museum almost a decade later. Like I had done before, I crept through galleries buzzing with excitement And this time, I wore some nice, sensible, comfy shoes to manage all that standing around. I wasn't there to see room after room of canvas after canvas like I was for the Van Gogh event. I was here, this time, to see only five paintings. Five paintings that had never been shown before in the United States, and that had very recently been the centerpieces of a huge legal battle about art restitution in our post-World War II era. When I turned into the darkened gallery, I was met with a glow, a golden light that seemed to radiate from the surface of the works around me, and from one painting in particular. A painting now lovingly nicknamed, The Woman in Gold. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. This season, Season 8, we are exploring examples of some of the most expensive artworks ever sold and considering why they garnered so much money. Continuing today with Gustav Klimt's Adele Blockbauer 1. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Born near Vienna, Austria in 1862, Gustav Klimt was one of seven children born into an artsy family. His mother, Anna, had early ambitions of being a musician before raising her family, and his father, Ernest Klimt the Elder, was a goldsmith and engraver originally hailing from Bohemia in what is now the Czech Republic. So the arts, in multiple forms, inspired and surrounded young Gustav throughout his childhood. He was educated in Vienna at the University of Applied Arts, where he originally studied architectural painting before moving in a direction that further emphasized the human figure. In the early 1880s, alongside his younger brother, Ernest Klimt Jr., as well as a like-minded pal named Franz Matsch, who was also a painter and a sculptor, Klimt opened his own independent art studio through which they all received various funding and commissions. So, working artists, they quickly became. For Klimt himself, His commissions mainly involved painting murals on the walls and ceilings of several large public buildings in and around Vienna, including, but not limited to, the Vienna Berg Theater, or the National Theater of Austria, as well as the famed Kunsthistorisch Museum, one of the most acclaimed art museums in Europe, if not the whole world. And his wonderful works for these spaces shot him quickly to fame. In 1888, The Austro-Hungarian Emperor Franz Joseph I awarded him the coveted Golden Order of Merit for his work done at the Berg Theater, and he was made an honorary member of both the University of Munich and the University of Vienna. So things were on the up and up career-wise. But in 1892, dual personal tragedies hit. Both his father, Ernest the Elder, and his beloved younger brother, Ernest II, died And suddenly, Gustav was left struggling as he attempted to care for his mother but also for his brother's family as well. One can imagine that this took a serious toll on Gustav Klimt, and historians have noted that it also vastly affected his artistic career, marking a turning point towards more personal, more meaningful artwork. The tragic losses of his brother and father weren't the only major events in Klimt's life in the 1890s. It was also the time in which he found love with a woman who would go on to become his lifelong partner, Emily Louise Flog, a fashion designer and a businesswoman who was introduced to Gustav by her sister, Helene, who had been married to Ernest Klimt the Younger. If you're familiar with any of Klimt's paintings, then you know Emily, because his seminal work from around 1907, The Kiss, reportedly shows Emily entwined with Gustav, her eyes closed and interrobed beautifully in gold and jewel tones. This is one of the key works from the artist's so-called golden phase, a period during which today's star painting was also created. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, because before all of this came the Vienna Secession Movement in 1897. The secessionists were a group of artists who were troubled by the overly traditional style approved by officially sanctioned organizations, like the Association of Austrian Artists. Like the impressionists in France before them, they sought a support system for experimentation and community for younger emerging artists, all without hoping to narrow themselves down to one particular style or medium, though they were all typically more aligned with the Art Nouveau movement than anything else. All artists and creative types were welcome, sculptors, painters, architects, designers. And you didn't have to live in Vienna or even Austria as a whole to be part of the Viennese secession, though most did. Their goal was to promote and publish the work of artists from all over who were doing interesting work to be shown right there in the center of town in their specially built exhibition hall. As the literary critic Herman Baer, himself a secessionist, wrote in the premier issue of their art journal, Ver Sacrum, or Sacred Spring, quote, Our art is not a combat of modern artists against those of the past, but the promotion of the arts against the peddlers who pose as artists and who have a commercial interest in not letting art bloom. The choice between commerce and art is the issue at stake in our secession. It is not a debate over aesthetics, but a confrontation between two different spiritual states," unquote. Gustav Klimt remained extremely active within the secessionist movement, even acting as the first president of the group all the way until he left in 1905, along with several others, after protesting a move wherein the group would give more prominence to painting over any other type of art, including decorative arts and architecture an equality that Klimt himself really wished to maintain. When Klimt and his partners were overruled, they officially resigned from the group, but no matter. Even though he had completed some incredibly influential projects during his association with the secessionists, including a then scandalous set of three paintings exploring the themes of philosophy, medicine, and jurisprudence for the ceiling of the Great Hall at the University of Vienna, many of the best works of his career were still to come. Enter that much beloved gold period. It's assumed that though Klimt wasn't a big traveler, two particular jaunts to Italy, especially visits to Venice and to Ravenna, were instrumental in the development of this new and forevermore to become his most famous artistic period. If you've seen images or have had the good fortune to explore the glowing golden mosaics of St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, or the jeweled mosaics of the Emperor Justinian and his wife, the Empress Theodora, in Ravenna, then you get it. You can see that flattened body styling and prolific use of gold and understand almost immediately that these works shook Klimt, and they carried him throughout the rest of his life. Conceived with extremely precise and bold lines, and highlighted with intricate areas of decoration, surrounded by layer upon layer of delicate gold leaf, it is these gold works that we envision when we think of Gustav Klimt and his sensual, rosy-cheeked, hooded-eyed women, like his partner, Emily, his Viennese patron, Fritza Riedler, and so many others, including the wealthy Adele Bloch
1: Coming up next,
0: is the dawn of the golden age for Gustav Klimt and the birth of the woman in gold. Stay with us. Bloomberg Connects is the free smartphone app that lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world anytime and anywhere. An awesome way to connect to the art world you love right now from the comfort of your own home. The app takes a portfolio approach, offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. Bloomberg Connects offers users the chance to discover new cultural partners all over the world. Right now, guides are available for the Guggenheim Museum, the New York Botanical Garden, the Frick Collection, the Noguchi Museum, the Serpentine Galleries, and more, with new arts and cultural spaces being added all the time. Bloomberg Connects allows you to access digital guides, hear from artists, curators, and experts, and get the great stories behind the art. Download Bloomberg Connects today at the Apple App and Google Play stores or visit app.bloombergconnects.org artcurious. That's app.bloombergconnects.org/artcurious. There's a world of entertainment options out there, and by that I mean that there's a lot of compelling international shows that you may be missing out on. So it's time to burst the domestic TV bubble and check out Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a commercial-free streaming service that's rooted in British television is home to sophisticated and artful storytelling and top-rated mysteries, addicting dramas, heartfelt comedies, and so much more. And unlike other British streaming services, Acorn TV also has content from Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and beyond. So if you are a fan of quirky British comedy, which I totally am, then The Other One is a must watch. It follows two sisters from very different worlds who have no idea that The Other One existed until their father drops dead. I always find something new to watch on Acorn TV because it is just loaded with thousands of hours of binge-worthy content. And you can stream all of your favorites on all of your devices for only $5.99 a month. Right now I'm especially digging on the show Digging for Britain, a fascinating exploration of archaeological sites throughout the British Isles from prehistory all the way through the modern era. So give the gift of Acorn TV with their Black Friday deal from November 24th through November 30th. You can also buy one annual gift membership and you'll get a second membership for 50% off. Buy as many annual gift memberships as you want and that 50% off still applies escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use my promo code artcurious. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV code artcurious to get your first 30 days for free. Be sure to check out their buy one annual gift membership get one 50% off deal acorn.tv slash artcurious. If you like podcasts like this one, then you enjoy experiencing immersive stories in an audio format. So that's why I'm sure you'll love Kobo Audiobooks. Kobo has a huge catalog of audiobooks, including bestsellers and originals across all genres. And with the Kobo Audiobooks subscription, you can enjoy an easy way to save money every single month. After a 30-day free trial, your subscription is only $12.99 per month for one monthly credit, and you can choose an audiobook from Kobo's catalog regardless of its list price, which is a steal considering the fact that some books can cost between $30 to $50, but not with Kobo. You just pay your monthly subscription fee and save, and your audiobook collection is yours forever, even if you cancel. For Art Curious fans, you can continue exploring and expanding your art knowledge with biographies, memoirs, and nonfiction audiobooks about your favorite artists, architects, and photographers. Discover more about the lives of Van Gogh, Frida Kahlo, and Picasso, among others, through a Kobo Audiobook subscription. Remember that by using my special link, you'll get a 30-day free trial no strings attached and then pay only a fee of 12.99 a month. To get started, visit kobo.com/artcurious. Start listening to Kobo audiobooks today at kobo.com/artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. Adele Blockbauer was the wife of the wealthy banker and industrialist Ferdinand Blockbauer a Czech-Austrian who was a great supporter of contemporary art in Vienna beginning at the turn of the 20th century. He commissioned Klimt to paint two portraits of his wife, and we're focusing on the first of the two, the one that is more typically lauded, known to us today as Adele Blockbauer I. It is the pinnacle of Klimt's gold period achievements, emphasizing Adele's beautiful, naturally delineated features with that typical Klimtian exuberant ornamentation. It's truly a bit of a difficult sight to behold, because the sitter is so surrounded, just encompassed really by gold, that her own decorative golden dress blends so supremely with the background. And you have to look a little bit closer than you think to determine where the figure of Adele begins and ends. As such, Adele Blockbauer feels separate from us, as if she doesn't really inhabit our world or our space. It's like she's somewhere else entirely, and the image becomes less of a straightforward portrait and almost a devotional icon, more golden Byzantine Madonna than Viennese socialite. And it makes perfect sense that the painting has been given the nickname, The Woman in Gold. Frank Whitford's 1990 book, Klimt, one of the first deep studies on the artist and his works, notes that Klimt's use of gold here particularly serves, to remove Adele Blochbauer from the earthly plane, transform the flesh and blood into an apparition from a dream of sensuality and self-indulgence, unquote. Even the various decorations surrounding Blockbauer read like symbols of her otherworldliness, or perhaps her belonging in various times and spaces. As Whitford continues, quote, the gold is like that of the Byzantine mosaics. The eyes on her dress are Egyptian. The repeated coils and whorls are Mycenaean, while other decorative devices based on the initial letters of the sitter's name are vaguely Greek, unquote. Though Adele Bloch-Bauer I is much loved today, it was not so when it was first premiered in 1907, nor when it was shown again the following year, 1908. Critics called this painting bizarre and vulgar, and even went so far as to proclaim that the painting was a direct challenge to the, quote, autonomy of art, unquote. And people didn't like all of that gold surrounding her because, yes, she looked more like a religious icon, and some claimed that there was no sense of individuality or personality in the painting. Now, I disagree, but then again, I'm not an art critic from 1908. Regardless, The painting was a special one for the Blockbauer family, as it was commissioned as a gift from Ferdinand to his wife in celebration of their wedding anniversary. It hung on a wall alongside its sister painting, Adele Blockbauer II, in the couple's Vienna apartment, outliving both the artist, who died in 1918 from a double whammy of a stroke and complications from the flu pandemic circulating globally at that time, and outliving Adele herself, who passed away in 1925. These two paintings, by the way, were apparently moved to her bedroom as a shrine to her after her death by her grieving husband. The two portraits of Adele Blockbauer remained in the Blockbauer family throughout the 1920s and 1930s, and they were occasionally lent for exhibition during this period. But dark clouds were building across Europe at this time, and as the 30s progressed, things for Jewish citizens in Austria weren't safe, to say the least. Ferdinand Blochbauer fled for safety first into Czechoslovakia, then to Paris, and finally into Switzerland. And after the annexation of Austria by Nazi Germany, Blochbauer's property was seized, and the portraits of Adele Blochbauer were part of that stolen property. After falling into the hands of the Nazi party, especially a Nazi lawyer, it ended up for a long time at the Belvedere Palace, a former Habsburg palace that had been transformed into a museum highlighting the artistic achievements of Austria since the Middle Ages. It makes sense that a work by Gustav Klimt, one of the best Austrian artists of the 20th century, would end up there. And indeed, The Kiss and other famed works by Klimt, such as his take on the Old Testament tale of Judith and Holofernes, Holla back to our lady love Artemisia Gentileschi from episode number 42. They are also housed there today. But what was definitely not cool is that the works remained in the hands of the Austrian state, even after Ferdinand Blockbauer's 1945 death left his entire estate, including the Klimt works, to his nephew and two nieces. And that is where things get really interesting. On this podcast, I have done an entire season on art in World War II. So if you've listened to those episodes, you'll know that there is still, to this day, an ongoing process of cultural restitution and reclamation for artworks that had been looted during World War II, especially looted by the Nazis. So be sure to go back and listen to episode number 31 for more details on that endeavor. After the war, works began to make their way back to the various members of the Blockbauer family, But the Klimt paintings—not only the dual portraits of Adele, but several other Klimt works originally owned by Ferdinand Blochbauer—all remained at the Gallerie Belvedere, mostly due to a technicality involving the disparate wills of Ferdinand Blochbauer and Adele Blochbauer. That's a long story right there. In the late 1990s, though, art restitution again came to the forefront of importance in Austria and beyond and the inheritors of the Blockbauer estate, primarily one of Ferdinand's nieces, a woman named Maria Altman, was moved to action. She was going to have the paintings returned for her family after a half-century of absence. Living in the US and working with a lawyer to make her case, Altman requested the return of six looted paintings, including Adele Blockbauer I, but the Austrian government balked because of that technicality involving the wills of the Blockbauers. So, here's where we go a little bit deep. In Adele's will, she asked that her Klimt portraits be given to the Austrian State Gallery upon the death of her husband, Ferdinand. But Ferdinand, who outlived his wife by 20 years and was the technical owner of the paintings since he commissioned and purchased them, stipulated that these works would be included in his entire estate which, as we noted, went to his nieces and nephews. In short, it was a mess. But Maria Altman wasn't one to give up, and in 2000, she filed a civil claim against the Austrian government and the Gallery Belvedere, suing them via her lawyer, E. Randall Schoenberg, in the U.S. courts, in order to avoid paying an exorbitant fee and to limit the length of the trial and arbitration processes, which would have been excruciatingly long in Europe. Nevertheless, the proceedings still lasted several years, and it finally was brought before the Supreme Court as the case formerly known as the Republic of Austria versus Altman. In 2004, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Altman, declaring once and for all that the painting had indeed been stolen and that Altman had a right to claim its return. But interestingly enough, they made no ruling about the official ownership of the painting itself that final issue didn't get resolved for another year and a half. And in January 2006, after further arbitration, it was finally agreed that five of the six Blockbauer Hall, including the now iconic Adele Blockbauer I, could be returned to the Blockbauer family. When asked about the ultimate fate of the Klimt paintings, Maria Altman told a New York Times reporter that it didn't make practical sense for her or her family to privately retain the works of art, probably due to insurance purposes. What did make sense was to sell them. Originally, many Austrians hoped that the works would stay in their home country. But by the 21st century, Gustav Klimt had become such a beloved artist a hometown hero that prices for his works had jumped into the millions and the Austrian government felt that the potential price of Adele Blockbauer I and other works would just be too plain high. And truly, they were probably right. Prices for works of this magnitude are typically out of reach for many cultural institutions, especially governments, let alone state-sponsored museums. Even so, Altman said, quote, I would not want any private person to buy these paintings. It is very meaningful to me that they are seen by anybody who wants to see them, because that would have been the wish of my aunt. Unquote. That may have been the dual wish of both Maria Altman and her aunt Adele Blockbauer, but the going rate for Klimt works of this magnitude was simply impossible for anyone but a private collector to manage, which is how. After that spectacular blockbuster showcase at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in mid-2016, Adele Blockbauer I was sold to collector Ronald Lauder, heir to the Estee Lauder cosmetics empire, for what was then the record price of $135 million, surpassing what was then the previous world record for the highest price ever sold for a work of art, a title held at that time by Pablo Picasso's Boy with a Pipe. But here's the good catch about this purchase. Yes, technically, Ronald Lauder was a private collector, but he had a trick up his sleeve. Lauder is the co-founder of the Neue Gallery, a museum that's situated right across the street from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And the Neue Gallery's specialty, you may ask? German and Austrian art from the first half of the 20th century. So, works of Gustav Klimt would fit perfectly within its walls. And that is where Adele Blockbauer I went, and where it remains, even to this day. It's the best of both worlds in a rare case. A private collector who immediately returns a painting to the public eye. It was a fate that, sadly, did not follow the other four Blockbauer family Klimts that were returned to Maria Altman and her family. All four of them were sold for millions upon millions of dollars to private collectors. A brief interesting coda here. The sister painting to the star of today's show, the painting known as Adele Bloch-Bauer II, was sold in 2006 for 87.9 million to a private collector. When the work showed back up on the art market about 10 years later, it was then sold for a whopping 150 million surpassing the amount paid for its sister painting by Ronald Lauder in 2006. That's quite a return on investment for its owner. That owner, incidentally? In 2017, it was revealed that Adele Block Bauer II's owner had been none other than Oprah Winfrey. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, it is the most expensive work of art ever sold by a non-white artist. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Joe Mallon. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Audio production services are provided by Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and video. Let them help you too at com. The Art Curious podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. You know that we are a fully independent podcast, and so we rely on advertising, sponsors, and donations to keep us going. To help the show, please consider donating to us, and thank you. You can help us out as well by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, because that helps us find new listeners. For more details on this show, including any images mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. Also, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Art Curious Pod. Check back with us in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in the most expensive works ever sold in art history.